You may be seated. Before we turn our attention to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words there, I'd like to take just a moment to comment on Psalm 23 for just a moment. We just sang some words from Psalm 23, and I didn't know that was going to happen this morning. I didn't know that I was going to say words from Psalm 23 until half an hour ago or so. But there were words from Psalm 23 that were not in the song we just sang. And I think they're the very words that we need to press into right now. Psalm 23 begins famously, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And then comes the very middle, the very heart of this familiar psalm, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We have a shepherd who walks with us through the dark valley. And right now, we're at least in the shadow of death having felt the weight of it, the loss of it, even now, and we're fearful for others that we love. Let's be honest about that. And let's lean into our shepherd who walks with us through darkness like this. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He was with us in this moment and He will be with us tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. So cling to Him. Rest in Him. Find your hope in Him and in Him alone. I invite you to open to Matthew's Gospel this morning as we continue looking at Jesus' teaching, as we continue to hear from our Good Shepherd in His Kingdom Life Discourse, Sermon on the Mount. In the book, A Lifelong Love, author Gary Thomas writes, how many marital problems would be solved if couples would simply read the Sermon on the Mount once a month together. I don't typically think of the Sermon on the Mount as a place to go in the Bible for teaching on marriage, but I do think almost everything in the Sermon on the Mount can be helpfully applied to our marriages. I'm hopeful that our time spent walking through the Sermon on the Mount, the Jesus' kingdom life discourse, will prove to be quite strengthening for the marriages in this body. If the Sermon on the Mount has significant for marriage, how can we summarize that message? Perhaps we could say that Jesus teaches us what a truly righteous marriage looks like. In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus had said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we noted last week, Jesus seems to be emphasizing the need for a practical righteousness a lived-out righteousness that exceeds the so-called practical righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Certainly, this practical righteousness must be reflected in the marriages of followers of Jesus. This morning, we come to the only teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that's focused on marriage. However, Jesus doesn't here address marriage directly. Instead, He warns His followers about the danger of divorce. Just broaching this subject can be painful for many people, and I want to be sensitive to that pain. Most of us have been touched by divorce, if not directly, then among our friends or in our families. My mother went through three divorces, and I have had friends in their second and third marriages. Divorce is complicated, painful, and very messy. But before we hear what Jesus has to say about divorce here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, we should... Consider briefly what the Bible says about marriage. Many of you will recall that we preached a whole series on this in 2020. So I'll merely summarize some of those foundational ideas. To do this, we have to return to the beginning. 
the Garden of Eden, where God created and instituted the first marriage. I'm sure you remember this story, but if you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. God created Adam and Eve. God created Adam first out of material drawn from the dirt, breathed life into his body, and settled him in the Garden of Eden. And he gave him a job to do, to cultivate the garden and protect its purity. And he gave him the authority to rule over everything else God had created. And he gave him a mission, the mission to be fruitful and multiply. Then God made a pronouncement about Adam, recorded for us in Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Adam probably didn't know that he was alone or that being alone was a not good thing. Rather than simply tell Adam, God instead brings all of the animals to Adam and provides him the opportunity to observe them, classify them, and ultimately name them. Through this process, Adam probably came to understand his aloneness, that there was not in all of God's good creation a helper fit for him. So God put Adam into a deep anesthetic sleep, removed a rib, and used that as the raw material to fashion Adam's great helper, a woman. Adam wakes from his anesthesia, and perhaps a little loopy, breaks out into poetry because of what he sees. We get a record of his poem in Genesis 2, 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't know why most of our English Bibles don't put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. At any rate, what is clear is that Adam recognizes that this creature standing before him is very different from the animals he had been naming, and she's quite similar to him, yet also somewhat different from him. God had removed Adam's aloneness, provided completion for him so that he could properly exercise the authority and properly fulfill the mission God had given him. And then the narrator draws an inference in Genesis 2.24 from what just happened that I believe is meant to define the fundamental aspects of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Three things must be present for a relationship to be a marriage. Leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh. Leaving probably refers to the establishment of a new family with the husband and wife both coming out from under their, all, their parents' all-encompassing parental authority, even though some couples may continue living with their parents. And this was almost always the case in the ancient world. Cleaving refers to faithfulness in the marriage covenant, maintaining a permanent public commitment to each other. Becoming one flesh refers at the basis to the physical union of the man and the woman, but also to the greater union that is to come to pass between a husband and a wife. When Jesus is later challenged about his perspective on divorce by the Pharisees, this is where he turns to instruct and correct them. And so we'll find it beneficial to remember this background behind what Jesus says about divorce here in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll read about his encounter with the Pharisees later in Matthew chapter 19. Now at this point, let me say what you probably already know. What Jesus says about divorce and remarriage is controversial, debated. Students of Scripture disagree about what he means and about how to apply what he says. In fact, Jesus is actually entering into a debate on what certain Old Testament Scripture means. And he's not agreeing with either side completely. Also, knowing that Jesus and Paul later addresses this topic on more than one occasion and says different things in each of those passages, I'm not going to attempt to sketch out everything the Bible says about this topic. I want us to focus in on what Jesus says in this particular context. So recall... 
that we've entered into a section where Jesus makes a series of six statements that begin with a reference to Old Testament law. We looked at the first two last week. Jesus had begun with the prohibitions against murder and adultery from the Ten Commandments. Whereas the scribes and Pharisees would have probably said that a person obeyed these commands as long as they didn't actually murder anyone or give their bodies to someone other than their spouses. Jesus insisted that anger in the heart, insults from the mouth, and lust in the imagination broke these commandments. Then he instructed his followers what true obedience to these commandments looks like positively. Pursue reconciliation and cut out of your life anything that might cause you to lust. Five of the six statements work something like this. Jesus refers to Old Testament legislation, clarifies or explains its true meaning, and then teaches what true righteousness looks like in relationship to that particular law. Matthew 5, 31 and 32 does not fit this pattern exactly. It's the shortest of the six statements, and it seems to leave off the positive instruction. I think there might be a good reason for this, but we'll come back to that later. Here, Jesus is opening up the Old Testament law's protection of wives. Let's begin in Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So... Jesus begins by referring to an abbreviation of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Please turn there in your Bibles with me. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. We walked through this last year in our series, but I think it's necessary to rehearse that here because how Jesus handles Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, is absolutely essential to properly understanding what Jesus says here about divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, contains a single complicated sentence in Hebrew. Here we go. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh. Did you follow that? Where does the command actually show up? It's in verse 4. Verses 1 to 3 are describing the specific situation in view. Let me see if I can help you understand what's going on here in simple terms. Let me tell the story with some names, made up, imagined. Here's the scenario that the law is dealing with. Greg marries Sue. Greg finds some indecency in Sue. Sue finds no favor in Greg's eyes. And you can say those are two sides of the same coin there. So Greg divorces Sue. And he issues her a certificate of divorce, a document that sets her free to marry any other man. That's a key piece of this puzzle. He gives her a certificate of divorce that sets Sue free to marry any man. Sue then marries Jack. Jack then hates Sue. So Jack divorces Sue or Jack dies, which makes Sue a widow. Therefore, here's the law, Greg is forbidden to remarry Sue because Sue has been defiled by Jack. Because Greg divorced her sinfully, wrongfully, illegitimately. Now you see that last line in that progression is in brackets because it's the implied logic 
of the command. It's not stated explicitly, but it's the logical link that makes sense of the whole puzzle. And now we've got to look at that a little more closely. And we need to make several observations here about this piece of legislation. What is the law designed to do? What is its purpose? It is designed to protect Israelite wives. As one writer puts it, the law protects the unfortunate woman from becoming a kind of marital football passed back and forth between irresponsible men. And it's a British guy who says that, so football means soccer ball to us. So there's the image for you. Who are the guilty parties in this situation? Greg is primarily guilty, and Jack doesn't look very good either. Notice number two in this progression. We'll talk more about the phrase, find some indecency in just a minute, because it's at the center of the debate. But in in the fact that Sue finds no favor in Greg's eyes is, I think, intended to be a stab at Greg. The phrase, finds favor in someone's eyes, means to receive grace from someone. Greg refuses to extend grace to his wife, Sue. Greg is the one who has put Sue in this terrible predicament. As one writer observes, the woman did not find grace in the eyes of her husband. While most interpreters try to establish a flaw in the woman that provoked this response, the clause actually exposes a flaw in the man. But how is it that Sue has been defiled and why is that a problem? Sue was defiled when she consummated her new marriage with Jack. How could that be? The phrase, been defiled, in a marriage context, can refer specifically to committing adultery. Leviticus 18.20 says, And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her, or be defiled with her. It's the same Hebrew word. Committing adultery defiles the ones involved, makes them unclean. Thus, the legislation implies that Jack is guilty of committing adultery. Sue is a victim in this scenario. But why? Why is Sue a victim, and why is Greg, the first husband, then forbidden to remarry her if her second husband should divorce her, or even if her second husband should die? We might think that it would be right and good for her to be reconciled with her first husband after all of this, if given the opportunity. It all comes down to what that ambiguous phrase, some indecency, means. And this stimulates the great rabbinic debate that continued well past Jesus' day. A rabbi named Shammai believed some indecency referred to some kind of serious, specifically sexual sin, even adultery. The Old Testament law elsewhere specifies the death penalty for adultery, But later rabbis, living under pagan rulers who didn't allow the Jews to have the power of capital punishment for breaches of their own law, would teach that divorce would be a sufficient punishment. In addition, many rabbis developed this into a requirement. A man must divorce his wife if she is found guilty of committing adultery. The other way of viewing the phrase, some indecency, is as anything the man finds indecent. The rabbi called Hillel and those who followed his teaching taught that a Jewish man had a right to divorce his wife for almost any reason. It seems that Hillel's school of thought became the generally accepted convention for most Jewish people. Men were allowed to divorce their wives for almost any reason, and the rabbis got real specific about this and listed dozens of bizarre reasons. If her appearance was displeasing in any way, if her behavior was frustrating in any way, or if she became ill with certain diseases, a Jewish man had the right and even the obligation, according to these rabbis, to divorce her and marry someone else. I was thinking about listing some of the specifics given in rabbinic literature, but it would just make you sick. It makes me sick to think about people who are Bible teachers 
the rabbis condoning tearing apart families for these things. So I'll spare you. Sinclair Ferguson writes, a law that was clearly intended to safeguard the women in Israel was turned into an escape clause for self-indulgent men. If we go back to our scenario from Deuteronomy 24, can we discern which rabbi was right? Well, neither, of course. Greg is forbidden to remarry Sue in this scenario as a legal penalty, a punishment for the way he divorced Sue in the first place. He had divorced her wrongly, illegitimately, sinfully. Some indecency seems to refer to something trivial, something indecent, something insignificant. Ironically, Rabbi Hillel may have been closer to understanding the phrase properly, but he was certainly wrong to suggest that the passage was giving permission to Jewish men to divorce their wives for any trivial thing they thought was wrong. Instead, the passage teaches just the opposite. Men are being cautioned against divorcing their wives for trivial reasons. The result of divorcing one's wife for some indecency is that when she remarries, she will be defiled, commit adultery, and the man who marries her also will commit adultery. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 should be understood as a warning against easy divorces, which is exactly what Jesus teaches. Return with me to His words in Matthew 5, 31. From the way Jesus refers to Deuteronomy 24.1, we can probably see how the scribes and Pharisees got off on the wrong foot with this text. As you looked at that complex sentence in Deuteronomy 24, I hope you could see clearly that the command, the point of the legislation, was found in verse 4 of that chapter. Yet the scribes and Pharisees seem to have focused in on the proper procedure for a divorce, that you had to make sure that you give her proper documentation. As I mentioned earlier, the divorce certificate in Israel and throughout the ancient world was an important document that explicitly set the divorced person free to remarry. Its purpose was to protect the divorced party. Now, this might be hard for us to imagine because divorce in our culture is a mega-complicated legal fiasco. Both parties actually have to sign the paperwork. Lawyers are often involved in order to divide the assets. Custody over children is often debated until the divorcing parties can agree. In the ancient world, it was much simpler. The divorce certificate primarily did two things. First, it stated, that the, it stated the severing of the relationship, saying something like, I am not your husband and you are not my wife. Second, it specifically stated that the divorced party was free to marry someone else. Said differently, the divorced party was no longer obligated to maintain the marriage relationship by keeping their vows to that person. In ancient Israel, during the Old Testament period, only men were legally capable of issuing a certificate of divorce. But in Jesus' day, under Roman law, a woman could also initiate a divorce. The point I want you to see is that divorce was very much one-sided in the ancient world. This means that probably often one party was a victim. One party was sent away and rejected without their consent, desire, or agreement. While it's common in our day for a couple to agree that it's time to separate and divorce, very often one party would rather stay together and try to work things out. So, the scribes and Pharisees emphasized that point. They saw Deuteronomy 24.1 as telling them that when they divorced their wives, they needed to make sure that they issued her a certificate of divorce so that she could legally remarry. They could then pat themselves on the back for doing what is necessary to protect their divorced spouses. But what Jesus says in verse 32 simply upholds the true teaching of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 and presses home the point that illegitimate divorce, 
results in breaking the prohibition against adultery. He simply explains that what was there all along, but the scribes and Pharisees had misunderstood or distorted. Look again at Matthew 5.32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let's be careful not to take that last phrase out of context, as is so often done. If you isolated that last phrase, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, Jesus would be saying that any man in any situation who marries a woman who has been divorced at any time would be guilty of breaking the prohibition against adultery. But in context, that is not what Jesus is saying. He means whoever marries a woman divorced in the way he's talking about commits adultery. Let's look at this more closely. Jesus is not saying anything different than Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. The point of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was to warn men against divorcing their wives trivially, illegitimately. From our story scenario, Greg divorced Sue because he found some indecency in her. Thus, he divorced her for some trivial, inappropriate reason. And when he did so, he put her in a situation in which she would almost certainly have to commit adultery. Both Deuteronomy and Jesus here assume that the woman will have to remarry to survive. Is this always the case? Of course not. So surely, as in the previous cases, the teaching about anger, there are exceptions. But for the sake of the argument... Jesus assumes, as does the Mosaic law, that the woman will remarry. When she does, she will break the commandment prohibiting adultery. Why? Because she still has an obligation to her her first husband. Jesus is specifying something that Deuteronomy 24 does not make clear. The wife will be guilty of breaking the commandment if she remarries. But presumably, the husband gave her a certificate of divorce that set her free of her obligations and set her free to remarry without reproach. And the second husband would read that certificate and see that she's not obligated to any other man. And so he will see nothing wrong with taking her as his wife. But Jesus says that he too will be guilty of breaking the commandment. How can Jesus say this? Because Jesus is working with the scenario of Deuteronomy 24. The husband has divorced his wife illegitimately, wrongfully, sinfully. Ultimately, Jesus is saying that a piece of paper does not by itself constitute the removal of marital obligations. Jesus is tying together Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 with Deuteronomy 5, 18, the prohibition against adultery, in light of his understanding of marriage from Genesis 2. Jesus is reading his Bible in context altogether. Now, as we think about Jesus' exception clause, we must again admit that there is significant debate among students of Scripture about what this means. If a man divorces his wife because she has been sexually immoral, then, Jesus says, that man does not make her commit adultery when she remarries. Why not? It seems that she has already been guilty of breaking the commandment, committing adultery. This goes back to the fundamental aspects of marriage we talked about in the beginning. Deuteronomy 24 is irrelevant in this case. The divorce certificate is not issued on the basis of some trivial matter. Instead, it is issued because she has broken the bonds of the marriage covenant already. A piece of paper cannot break the marriage bonds. Jesus says that sexual immorality can and does. Now, unlike many of the rabbis, Jesus is not saying that a person must divorce when sexual immorality has taken place. Instead, he is saying that if the victim of this immorality chooses to initiate a divorce, 
that person will not be guilty of causing anyone else to break the prohibition against adultery. In this case, the piece of paper would merely legalize what has already actually happened. The covenantal bonds of marriage have been broken. As Jesus looks at this from the husband's perspective, in this case, the wife has broken the one flesh relationship of marriage. Of course, it happens the other way around also. The question remains, what does Jesus mean by sexual immorality? Some take it as an exact synonym for committing adultery so that it refers to someone sharing their body with someone who's not their spouse. If this is right, should we take into account how Jesus had just talked about looking at someone with lustful intent, looking at someone with a desire to use them for one's own private, personal pleasure as breaking the prohibition against adultery. Others see the word as a very general term for inappropriate physical contact. The word is used very generally to refer to all kinds of sexual sin. It would probably be unwise to attempt to specify a list of acceptable reasons for divorce. However, don't miss Jesus' apparent point. Sexual immorality destroys marriages in ways that a divorce certificate by itself does not. Where that has happened, however, divorce might be an acceptable, legitimate course of action. This raises the question as to whether or not there might be other exceptions, other situations when divorce might be an acceptable course of action. I hesitate to go down this road. The last thing I want to do is give people the idea that divorce is easy or that certain situations necessitate divorce. These passages are not here to address the question, when is it okay for me to divorce my spouse? Some folks don't see this exception clause as a real exception, insisting that divorce is never right, never okay. Others say that this immorality refers only to the physical act of adultery, and that might result in a legitimate divorce for a follower of Jesus. Paul also addresses this question in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, and he seems to add another specific exception, abandonment. In the case of a follower of Jesus being married to someone who is a non-believer, if the non-believer wants a divorce, then the follower of Jesus should let them go. And then the follower of Jesus is free to remarry without reproach. Jesus doesn't say anything about this situation, and neither do the Old Testament Scriptures. So how can Paul make that statement? Well, he could say that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so he has the authority to make such a pronouncement. However, if we ask the question, what is the common denominator between these two exceptions, sexual immorality mentioned by Jesus and abandonment mentioned by Paul, we can see that each of these destroys one of the fundamental aspects of marriage that we talked about from Genesis 2. Sexual immorality destroys the bonds of marriage by tearing apart the one flesh union of a husband and wife. And abandonment destroys the cleaving aspect of marriage, the permanent commitment to stay with one's spouse for life. So, when evaluating marriages today, whether our own or in counseling situations, if a spouse is doing something that threatens those fundamental aspects of marriage, we might be looking at a situation where divorce might be an acceptable thing to do. Abuse, for example, threatens both the cleaving aspect of marriage and also the one flesh union of marriage. It should be said, however, that sexual immorality, abandonment, and even abuse can be repented of. So let no one be hasty in the decision to divorce. Extend grace to a wayward spouse whenever possible, as long as possible. 
I've come to realize that as I shared last week, my problem, my personal problem with lust in the early years of my marriage fits this statement of Jesus. Thus, Tamara could have divorced me and been free to marry someone else. She didn't know that at the time, and neither did I. I say it here because I think this teaching of Jesus is meant to cut both ways. It's meant to warn us about easy divorces and to restrict our desire to get out of our marriages. But I think it's also meant to warn married people about the danger of sexual sin. He's already warned us with hell as the final eternal destination for those who continue in lust without repentance. Now... He warns us with divorce as a possible, legitimate consequence in this life. Jesus really wants us to take our sins seriously. My wife chose to extend grace to me. She might not have. I'm really grateful. And God chose to extend grace to me by granting me real repentance. He might not have. I'm really grateful. If someone divorces their spouse because of immorality, they should be considered free to remarry without reproach. In the Old Testament, the penalty for the one who breaks the marriage bonds this way through adultery was death. That makes the surviving spouse a widow or widower, and widows and widowers are free to remarry after their spouse's death. So, it seems that Jesus' teaching allows for the victim of immorality to act as though the death penalty had been executed. Jesus' teaching here sheds some light on what Matthew said earlier in his gospel about Joseph and Mary's relationship. I want to return there for just a moment. Look back at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph Joseph and Mary were betrothed, legally engaged to be married, if we can put it that way. She turns up pregnant, and Joseph knows that he wasn't involved in that. So Joseph's only reasonable conclusion would be that she had conceived with another fellow. That is to say, Joseph's only reasonable conclusion would be that Mary had committed adultery. Matthew says that it was because he was a just man, a righteous man, that he decided to divorce her. Now, do you suppose that Matthew is saying that he was righteous like the Pharisees? Or do you think that Matthew is suggesting that Joseph was modeling, expressing a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? I think the latter. Joseph was doing the right thing, expressing true righteousness. By divorcing Mary, he would not have been guilty of making her commit adultery because she had apparently already committed adultery. He would not have been violating Deuteronomy 24, and he even expressed his concern for her by wanting to do it privately, setting her free to remarry whoever the father of the baby might be without the public stigma of being labeled an adulteress. That would have been righteous conduct, according to Matthew. But of course, Joseph was wrong about the adultery, and so there was no reason to divorce Mary. So what are we to make of Jesus' teaching here? Unlike the rest of these statements, He doesn't give us any positive instruction. He seems to just move on to the next topic, the next Old Testament law He wants to unpack. What does the righteousness that will exceed the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees look like in relation to marriage and divorce? I think Jesus has already given the positive teaching related to divorce. Jesus has said that in most cases, divorce is going to result in breaking the prohibition against adultery. So this connects tightly with the previous paragraph, where he indicated that looking at someone with lustful intent 
looking at someone with a desire to use them for one's own private, personal pleasure, also breaks the commandment. Thus, his teaching for how to obey that commandment surely applies here as well. But I also think his teaching about how to obey the prohibition against murder applies so that the first three of these six statements fit together as a trio, a triad, a unity, and they can be held together like this. So if that's the case, then what does repentance and the road to a truly righteous marriage look like? As in verses 23 and 24, pursue reconciliation in your marriages. Make that a priority. If you suspect that your spouse has something against you, is angry with you, for some reason or for no reason, for a big reason or for a small reason, take it as your responsibility to seek reconciliation. And do it quickly. Sometimes this might mean that you need to get other followers of Jesus involved in the details of your marriage. If, you're, if you've got unresolved conflict in your marriage, or if you are the victim of your spouse's abuse, please let someone in. Don't conceal. Let your brothers and sisters help. If reconciliation is always our goal, it will be much more difficult to reach the point of having to even speak the D word in our homes. Also, as in verses 29 and 30, cut off and throw away anything in your life that could cause you to head down the road to divorce, especially things that could lead to the kind of immorality that legitimates divorce. And, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, Gouge out from your heart anything that might destroy the joy of your relationship. Are there expectations that you hold over your spouse's head? Are there selfish desires that just cause conflict in your marriage? Are there things that you do to isolate from your spouse? Cut these things out and throw them away. Divorce is always caused by sin, and almost always by the sin of both spouses. Nevertheless, divorce itself is not always sinful. It is rare, rare, for divorce to be a legitimate option for two Christians. If divorce has affected your life, I want you to know that God understands the unique pain. God has been spurned by His bride, and He even issued Israel a certificate of divorce, sending her away into exile. If you've experienced divorce, know that Jesus' death really does provide forgiveness for all of your sins and cleansing for all that you are ashamed of. His death doesn't erase the consequences, and it doesn't erase the pain But for every follower of Jesus, we must look to Him who has provided total and complete forgiveness so that we don't stand before God as guilty men and guilty women, even in the case of divorce. We have to deal with God and His Word as we are right now, not considering what might have been or what I wish I would have done or what I should have done and didn't know any better at the time. As we look back on the past, each of us must own our responsibility for our marriage problems. And if a marriage ends, each of us must own, honestly, whatever sin we may have contributed to that end. But don't automatically, without good reason, take responsibility for the sin of the other person. Know that God always uses our suffering and our pain, even the suffering and pain of divorce, for His good purposes. That means that when we look back at divorce in our own history, whether our own or that of someone close to us, we must actively look for what good God was doing 
in the midst of great evil. If we can purpose to do that, I think we'll find God healing the wounds and the brokenness. And as we rest in the forgiveness that Jesus has provided, we don't have to be ashamed anymore. And we don't have to carry the shame of abuse or even of our own failures. And if you've been illegitimately divorced and you've chosen to remarry, Jesus is not saying in this passage that your second marriage is permanently tarnished as an adulterous relationship. If you realize now that you still had an obligation to your previous spouse, acknowledge and confess that sin, but let go of any guilt. Repentance would mean that you remain faithful to the marriage you're in now. Jesus wants us to experience a truly righteous marriage. And I want to say to those of you who are married or who hope to be someday, you really can go the distance by God's grace. And we have such a beautiful, we have many beautiful examples in our church, but all of our minds are freshly on Bob and Barb Baker. 65 years of a faithful marriage is a beautiful thing. And God calls us to go the distance. And let us take them and others in our body as examples to follow. Pursue reconciliation in your marriages as conflict arises. Make war on your own sinful desires and habits. Make war on your own sinful desires and habits, not your spouse's. Make war on your own sinful desires and habits that could lead to marital unfaithfulness and rest in the forgiveness that Jesus offers to sinful husbands and sinful wives. It is only the death of Jesus that spares us from the judgment of hell, which we all deserve. If anger in the heart, insults from the mouth, and lust in the imagination makes one deserving of hell, Who could ever claim innocence? Who could ever claim to be prepared to stand before God on judgment day and receive any other sentence than eternal condemnation in hell? Only one, the man, Jesus. Yet he was pronounced guilty and hung on a cross to die horrifically painful and shameful death. He who knew no sin became sin. The Son of God stood before His loving Heavenly Father, the judge of all the earth, and essentially pled guilty and said, essentially, since there is no other way for guilty sinners to escape your righteous wrath, I will drink this cup because it is your will that guilty sinners escape your righteous wrath. I will not appeal the the guilty verdict. I will not seek a reduced sentence because you love these guilty sinners and because I love these guilty sinners. I will endure the punishment their sin deserves. I will become the object of your wrath. Though you've never in all of eternity been angry with me, before. Treat me as you treat sin. The righteous man Jesus died to pay the deserved penalty for sins committed by unrighteous sinners. And in doing so, he has brought us, believers, into eternal relationship with God. Peaceful, harmonious, loving relationship with God. For all who trust Jesus become the righteousness of God. Not only are we counted righteous by God the moment we begin trusting in Jesus, but then He actually empowers us to live righteously in this world, embodying God's righteousness by obeying His Word. Jesus died sacrificially for us, and God accepted His sacrifice, raising Him from the dead, seated Him 
on the throne of the universe so that he can now be trusted and obeyed by sinners from every nation on the planet. Following Jesus really is the key to the good life, the truly good life as the Bible describes it. And following Jesus really is the key to a good marriage, a truly righteous marriage. I'd invite the music team up to sing to lead us in singing once more a familiar song, Jesus, Messiah. Revel in the reality that Jesus became sin for you and that He now makes you totally by His grace the righteousness of God. And you sing together. <laughs>